Welcome back to another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation. We're your hosts, Melanie Sona and Erin Liedka. And today we are very thrilled to be joined by Dr. Richard Jackson. And for those of you who may not know, uh, Dr. Richard Jackson is a professor emeritus at the Fielding School of Public Health at the University of California, Los Angeles, where he was department chair in environmental health sciences. As a pediatrician, he served in many leadership positions with the California Health Department. For nine years, he was the director of the CDC's National Center for Environmental Health and received the Presidential Distinguished Service Award. While at CDC, he established major environmental public health programs and instituted the federal effort to biomonitor chemical levels in the U.S. population. He's received numerous awards for his contributions to public health and architecture planning. Uh, Dr. Jackson co-authored the books Urban Sprawl and Public Health, Making Healthy Places and Designing Healthy Communities, for which he hosted a PBS series. He has served on many environmental health boards, as well as the board of directors of the American Institute of Architects. And with that impressive uh, introduction, thanks for joining us today on Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation, Dr. Jackson. We are very excited to have the opportunity to speak to you. So thank you for being here. It's a thrill. And, you know, the greatest gift you can get as you've coming, you know, towards the end of your career is to see the next generation of leaders stepping up and are well-versed, but also tough enough to deal with the huge challenges that we are facing as a society. Well, we're definitely very honored um, to have you as a trailblazer in this uh, field. And um, as our viewers may know, um, both Aaron and I are medical school um, bound, hopefully physicians one day. Um, so what you're doing is very much so um, in line with what we are very interested in. And that's looking at how we can improve health outcomes overall um, on the broader scale. So um, if you wouldn't mind just to start us off. Uh, well, you're a physician, you're a pediatrician, um, but you have such, you know, you have roots in looking at how the built environment impacts um, health and quality of life. So could you maybe just start by telling us how you first became interested in the built environment or recognized how um, it is very impactful um, in one's life trajectory? I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, and it's a poor city. It's a tough town. And uh, my dad had died. He was a fighter pilot, survived World War II, and developed polio at age 27 and died, leaving my mother with three babies. So it was um, it was a real struggle. But I think one of the things that happens to a person, a young person who goes through that is a lot of things seem very unimportant and some things seem extremely important. And I say this to pre-med students and others that look into your own soul and, you know, what are the things you really care about? Because if you spend your life working on something that you feel is important, and that's how I ended up being a pediatrician. Uh, that's how I, but, uh, you know, New Jersey, it's called the Garden State, but it became, it's vastly overpaved at this point. Um, and it had wonderful beaches, but now they're being all bought out. You almost can't go there because Wall Street people have so much money. They've bought out a lot of the areas there. The uh, pineys, we used to call the pine barrens to the south in South Jersey, are steadily being destroyed by sea level rise because salt water will kill those things as it moves into the aquifers. 
And um, the cities themselves are, are old. Um, and so it is a recipe for, if you will, age groups and ethnic groups to be in collision a fair amount of the time. So it actually, and of course, Jersey's stuck between Philadelphia and New York City. So we always feel like the uh, stepchild to very powerful places. And so, you know, I, I'll tell you a quick story because when I was finishing my pediatric residency and I went into my favorite pedi- pediatric cardiology professor and I said, you know, I've decided not to uh, pursue a career in infectious disease. I had CDC experience in me at, at that point, young man experience. And I'm going to go into public health. And he looked at me and he said, where have we failed? And what he meant was that public health was seen as second rate, second tier to actual clinical medicine, putting your hands on people. And I wasn't prepared to really deal with that pushback, but I'm going to tell you now, um, I have never been bored a day. I think public health, is what a huge variety of things you can do in your career. And it, it, it one of the things, I, I, after the shootings, um, the awful shootings we've had in our country, um, the medical groups, the emergency medicine docs came out and said, we're really upset about this. A lot more has to be done. And the National Rifle Association said, you health people need to stay in your own lane. And they shouted out, damn it, this is our lane. We're seeing 10, 20 people a day with gunshot wounds in our big cities. And so where I'm going with that is it's not okay for doctors to sit in their offices in white coats and write prescriptions. We've got to be out in the community and we've got to affect change because everything in our society, whether it's housing, transportation, education, finance, taxes, they all impact health. Yeah, that's we couldn't agree more. Um, And I think, you know, your ability to look at um, specifically when it comes to the built environment, right, broaden people's perspective on what the built environment is and why the built environment is important to health is something that Melanie and I were, you know, particularly interested in and um, really kind of inspired by, right? You're kind of the one of the pioneers in this field of saying, hey, you know, like, let's look beyond just the basic like chemical toxins and let's look at other factors of the built environment that play into health. And when Melanie and I were reading about your work, we noticed, you know, you faced some resistance to your ideas about the built environment and about um, including, you know, these in different components of our environment and health. And we're, I'm wondering, like, how did you successfully, you know, convince people or garner support for this idea that the built environment matters? And, and ultimately, right now, I mean, we're in an environment where I still do feel like factors of the built environment are underestimated. They're underappreciated. There's not enough emphasis placed on them, but there was a culture shift. It seems, you know, people know what the built environment is or the whole term for it. Um, So yeah, what, what were, what were things that you, you know, when facing some of that initial pushback, how did you convince people that this was something that was important to everyone's health? The pushback never stops by the way. Um, I, the earlier call I was on related to getting the hospital systems and, and the healthcare system in the U.S. to really start paying much more attention to climate. And as you know, the medical industrial complex is now 20 percent 
of the entire GDP of the United States is going to medical care. About eight and a half percent of all the workers in America now are in the healthcare business in some form or another, or pharmaceutical development or whatever. And it's about eight and a half percent of the carbon footprint of the United States. So as an example, uh, through the National Academy of Medicine, we've been pushing to have the medical regime, if you will, really pay much more attention to their carbon footprint. And anybody that's been in a hospital is just stunned at how much waste there is, for example. And, you know, they're running uh, minus 100 degree freezers all day long, night and day, and fume hoods that don't need to be going and on and on and on. And so one effort has been to make the accreditation of hospitals uh, include climate metrics. How much of a greeting do you think that got from the CEOs of the healthcare systems and hospitals of the yeah. United States? They really pushed back. We had enough to worry right. about. And you tell us to worry about this. And yet, I'm going to tell you something. And I know you, all the young docs are really worried about climate. All the medical students are really worried about it. All the old guys like me and women are really worried about it. It's the ones in early career that are just overwhelmed with the debt they've had from school and the patient demands, you know, 20, 30 patients a day. Uh, and so they can't even pick their heads up to um, think about these larger issues. So leadership from your generation is going to be so important going forward because you're going to be, frankly, the victims of this. I've been talking about climate, but in some ways it's all related to the issue of the built environment. And I mentioned this in my own personal history, I went to CDC in 1994. I was sworn in by David Satcher, one of my heroes in public health. Uh, and uh, the work was really hard. It was endlessly fuss uh, trying to get more budget. We were trying to get the biomonitoring, the measuring of chemicals in the American people. In the beginning, we could measure lead and a few other things. By the time I left, we were up to 500 chemicals on 5,000 people a year, with the, plus using it for studies. And Early in my career, I'd done a lot of work around pesticides and realized I could not, not I, to really make the argument that these farm workers were poisoned, you had to be able to measure it in the bodies of the farm workers, not merely to say the crop duster went over and they started vomiting. And that's all the information you've got. You've got no clinical measurement to really document what was going on. So it was a passion to get the biomonitoring going. And I was working on that. And, you know, there was the heat waves in Chicago. We sent people up to look at the 700 people that died in the Chicago heat wave, I think 95, 96, et cetera. But we had moved. I have three sons. Um, in fact, one is a doc at CDC now. And um, we moved. Uh, we did what yeah, you could tell them, an old white guy. We looked at where the uh, best scores for the public health, public schools were in Atlanta. And we bought in that school district. So we I discovered that within about two weeks of living there, that there wasn't a sidewalk within five miles of where we lived. And the kids had to be wow. and called back and forth to school. The oldest son oh became goodness. a distance runner and I had to drive him to the Chattahoochee National River Park there because it was the only place he could run distance uh, for any serious period of time because it was too dangerous to be running in the sloppy gutter next to the two lane roads. And so I, I found myself feeling overwhelmed by work and sort of frustrated by my home situation and that's my family's home situation. And I tell this story, but I, I literally was driving to the to Dr. Satcher's office from my office over in what was called Chambly. 
and we're, I'm driving down a six lane road. It's actually seven. It had a suicide lane in the middle and they're homes of the poor on both sides of the street and garden apartments and strip malls and this sort of thing. It was a little difficult. And over on the side it was 90 plus degrees outside. The humidity was brutal as it can get in the summertime in Atlanta. And there was an older woman walking along carrying a shopping bag, one in each hand, shopping bags. And I, I, I was so upset by seeing this. And I mean, you know, that woman drops dead. The cause of death will be heat stroke and it won't be absence of public transportation, absence of trees, poor air quality. And she's killed by a truck going by because it's slippery where she is and the trucks are going five feet, three feet from where she's walking. It will be motor vehicle trauma and it won't be lousy urban planning and lack of public amenities, especially for poor people. And so it, I called up my friend Howard Frumpkin, who was the first author of our first book. And I said, Howie, I'm worried about parts per million and parts per billion. And what's what's in the residues of animals in, in uh, faraway places and uh, the melting of the North Pole. But what really matters to most people is where do they live, where do their children live. Um, you don't have to be really rich to have a happy life. You can go to a lot of, if you will, Latin countries, uh, other places where the people's needs are relatively modest, but it's safe and you have a sense of community and there's a good quality food. Mexico, you know, a mix of uh, rice and beans gives you a complete protein. And, and you know, I'd rather play, sing songs and listen, sit in the town square and watch the old people and the young people. So... Um, that's when we, the nice thing about being at CDC is I could, I, I had a pretty good budget and I could bring in experts on absolutely anything. So we brought in the guy from NASA who had done the overflights checking for heat island effects. And so you go over a shopping center in Atlanta and the, it's 110, 120 degrees on that black pavement. And then you go over the forest and it's 30 degrees cooler. That was one example. What we were able to bring in um, the most interesting people. One I loved was the people that did um, uh, SEPTED, Community Policing Through Environmental Design. And if you physically, the example was in Tampa, Florida, when they moved, removed, put windows facing the sidewalks, crime dropped about 30 to 40 percent. And so that the community could actually see what was going on out there rather than being visible. Um, that's one example. But the nice thing about CDC is, is um, if you invite people to come in and talk about something, they do. But I got a lot of pushback because I wanted to have, I got the funding for two new buildings and uh, one was the lab building and one was an office building. And I thought, I want a three-story, four-story atrium, a welcoming lobby with pleasant, attractive stairways on the side and the meeting rooms off the stairways so that people are encouraged to socialize because that's good for our health. Loneliness is a big disorder in America, says the Surgeon General, and he's right. But we also, you know, we also need to get the physical exercise of going up and down the stairs. Don't force people onto an elevator the second they walk into a building. And that, if you need an elevator, great, but let's build buildings that encourage people to exercise. I got so much pushback. Then I wanted a walking trail, and I wanted showers in the building so that people could bike to work in Atlanta, and, uh, and with lockers so they could change their clothes. You would think I was asking the General Services Administration for, you know, an Apollo rocket or something. No, no, we don't do that. No, we, we got to do that. We're about health. There's gotta be, you got to encourage your own employees oh to be about health. 
before we go telling anybody else to do it. So I'm carrying on a lot here, but you uh, you, you can yeah. see that in, a, in an odd way, being frustrated, which I think a lot of our young people are, is a gift because it opens you up to new ways of thinking. I, well, I just want to say that I, I think there was a couple of things that you mentioned that are really uh, kind of stand out to me. And one of which is like when public health and safety measures and when you have a good built environment, right? Or just in general, when public health is working, it's invisible. People don't think about it. People don't notice it. People aren't, you know, it, it's not um, in the forefront of people's attention because a lot of things are just prevented in the first place. And then, you know, when we get into some some more issues, especially when we talk about, um, you know, various illnesses or, you know, cancer or something like that, right? It's like, this is a very visible thing. Um, and, you know, it, there's just so many, so many things that could have been done to prevent these bad things from happening in the first place. And so I think it's really interesting that you have that perspective. And I I also think that this idea that people within the public health space need to kind of practice what they preach is really interesting too, because, you know, especially when it comes to research, it, it shows that there's like barriers to translation of knowledge, even within people who understand the research fully 100%, right? Because people are doing research on health and they're doing research on how the environment affects you, but yet the environments that they're existing in, and they, they're the top scientists, you know, CDC top scientists in the nation, in the world. Um, and so, you know, having to advocate for that kind of thing and pointing out, hey, you know, this is, this is something that maybe people would want and people could benefit from. It's really interesting that you kind of have to do that and something to keep in mind, especially for Melanie and I as we're trying to make knowledge about people's environments and make knowledge about people's uh, neighborhoods accessible to everyone and understandable to everyone so that they can apply it in their their um, daily lives. So I, I appreciated that insight. And based off of that insight, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, how, how have you found, because I, th I think that's something that's, that maybe especially people outside the public health space, how do you convince people or how do you show people that these things work? The, the environment is important. Um, yeah. It, like how do you, how do you, cause you can't really, when you point to the benefits, right. It's kind of public health has this invisible role. So how can, how are you able to advocate and convince people that this stuff is important when, you know, the, the odds are, I don't know, people are just not in, inclined to, to think that way. You know, Erin, um, I grew up, my mom remarried, and there were seven kids in the home, and it was a really a difficult. And somebody had a toothache in the house about once a month, and there was no fluoride in the water. There was no fluoridated toothpaste for the first 10 years. And yeah, fluoride's not perfect. If you get too much of it, you get spots in your teeth, and it's uh, we should really make sure the doses are low. But man, oh man, it doesn't, you cannot ignore a good toothache. It was just... Uh, exists in your body and it's right there. But where I'm going with that is in my pediatric career, I never saw a child die of whooping cough, but uh, Dr. Satcher almost died of it as a child. He had it for, he could not get admitted to a hospital in uh, Alabama where he was growing up. He was one of a large family. His mother had to hold him for a whole week to get him through whooping cough. 
And I think, you know, that those early life experiences, which I've already talked about, they really shape what you're going to do in your life. You became an MD, PhD and had huge positive effects on it. But I saw, I saw children die of chickenpox. You know, they were cancer patients largely because, you know, you have immune deficiency really was the problem. Um, I, I saw people die of preventable diseases. And I worked on smallpox eradication in India for um, about three months. And you, to have an edu moderately educated person or a doctor from Stanford to stand up and say, what you need to take is horse pills instead of getting immunized is just gangsterism. It's stupidity. And um, we, and you, you, poor Tony Fauci got beat up for doing it, but he was saying the right thing. And so it does actually, how shall I say this? Courage is really going to be a very important part of your skills as you become physicians in your own lives. And there are more than a few times you're going to think, geez, I'd like to just back away. I don't want to go in front of this hearing where i went to many a public meeting. I was state health director for California and where you'd walk into a high school gymnasium where there had been a, a couple of wrestlers sick and maybe one died of meningitis and people were ready to riot. And uh, you still have to go there. In fact, what you're doing right now is so important in this because you, one of the things you learn in public health is you can't communicate too much. You really have to do that. And you would... You said, don't be too technical with your language because it's a podcast. Well, one of the first lessons you learn is you have to use a little technical language. This is a secret. So um, I'm very sorry. We're, we have uh, meningococcal meningitis in the, on the wrestling team here. And, but meningitis is just inflammation of the meninges, the lining of the brain. And we have good drugs that can deal with this. And we've got to really do surveillance. Surveillance. That means we'd have to test people's nasal swabs on a regular basis to make sure it's not being spread. What I did there, though, is you use the technical language because you have to hold, you have to have authority because you talk too much like a kindergarten teacher. People don't pay attention. And that's not a put down. I love kindergarten teachers. But um, you. Different you, audience. Yeah, you have to both re retain your authority, but also to be accessible. And by the way, that's classic pediatrics, too, because you don't. Talk to it. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, and pediatricians, we don't do baby talk. In fact, one of my pet peeves is every time somebody calls a child a kid, I say, no, that's not a kid, that's a child. But that's a story. <laughs> yeah. Um, well said, Dr. Jackson. Thank you for sharing those anecdotes and, um, you know, giving that message to uh, all of our listeners truly in whatever field you find yourself in. I think it's always important to have that um, courage, right, to speak up on behalf of what um, is important and what can ultimately impact, you know, a multitude of people, especially in a field like medicine. And as we are also concerned about climate, um, we actually had a season uh, a few seasons ago now where we talked about heat specifically um, and the impact of heat on our health outcomes, uh, which is very much so intertwined with what we're talking about now with built environment, actually. But yeah, those are all areas in which are highly contentious. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about these things, but it's going to take um, some courageous leaders to be able to um, continue the work that um, people in your generation have started. So, um, but to kind of transition out of 
out of that ever so slightly. Um, you are definitely not just a talker. You're very much so about what you believe in. And that is in part why we have you on this podcast is to demonstrate or to um, just discuss the actionable steps that we can take um, to be able to combat the things we don't like seeing going on in our environment. Um, and one thing we came across when we were doing a little bit of snooping on you was um, this documentary that you were involved in called uh, Designing Healthy Communities, which for our listeners, you can you can see that online through PBS. Um, but could you pre- briefly just describe what that documentary was about um, and the most important aspects of designing healthier communities that you covered in that. When, um, after I left CDC and I, I began to get on the, if you will, the talk circuit and I'd be invited to various often medium sized cities around the country that were looking at further developing out. And I'd be asked and I would literally say, okay, I'm happy to come and talk, but I want to meet with the city council, including the mayor. I want to have the chief of police, the fire chief, at the meeting, um, and I'd ask them, what are you most worried about? And I live in Northern California. Our big worries out here right now, if you average citizen, you'd say, they would say, I'm worried about crime because it's gone up and up and up, and I'm worried about homelessness. And both of those have genuine built environment aspects to it. And um, I mean, good grief, homelessness. Um, it's gotten to the point where San Francisco, I love San Francisco. I went to medical school here, but it's, uh, it, it's having a very hard time and we've just not built enough housing. And the, there are a lot of reasons for it, but one of the biggest reasons of all is we have too many of the decisions about what we build residing within the for-profit sector. And they're always trying to pencil out, do I make enough money if I build this or build that? And can I put the cheapest, stuff in this development or, uh, you know, bring in the most ROI, return on investment. I always joke that ROI in French means, wow, that means the king, right? Because ROI is (laughs) the king in America. But we have not built enough for people. And so, and our tax policies do too much to discourage um, really good development. And uh, so, and then the transportation thing uh, has been, the first time I met with all the heads of, uh, I went to Disneyland, I gave a talk and there were about a thousand transportation engineers in the Disneyland hotel. And I got up and said, you people, and it was like 95% overweight guys, you people are um, more important to health than all the doctors in the country. And you think about the design of the road and the speed limits and the turn radiuses, but you have much more impact. So one of the things that came out of that was in California, and this was more under Governor Brown, Jerry Brown, was trying to move the state routes out of the cities and have them go around the city. Because early on, we were building highways. We tended to use the main street, which was the busiest street, and the shopping street and the community center. And that was not the street that should be the high speed road. That should be the place. And so this has happened in Lancaster, California, the top gun city where the Air, Air Force has a big base there. They redesigned their downtown be walkable, to have social centers, to have uh, food shops. If there are banks, there are not too many of them. If you have too many banks, the place becomes uninhabited. Uh, It's not friendly to people. Um, You all know how much dining improved when people had little cafe stalls outside the the front. So you felt happy when you walked along there and you may even see someone you know when you talk. So um, 
but I'm jumping around on you, but when I, I think back to having the police chief or the fire chief, and they don't, there'd always be a question. The mayor would ask me about, well, I have diabetes. What should I do? And I said, well, you start need to start taking the bus every day to work because you'll get to know what people are thinking and the physical exercise will be good for you. And they actually would say, you know what, doc, you're probably right. So I was trading on the medical knowledge uh, to an extent. But when I talk, kids, if at all possible, kids need to walk or bike to school. Um, it, you know, one of the things I learned is how do you deal with a bully when you're, when you're doing that? If you're sitting in mom's car all day long, you don't learn what the real world is like. The average New York uh, kid that grows up taking the subway is ready for a whole lot of the world more than uh, other people are. What did I learn doing the video series one? I learned that there's a lot of wisdom in, in the various communities. They're all different. Boulder, Colorado did a wonderful, it was 130 years ago when Olmsted and his sons laid out the bike routes going down from the flat irons. But then the cross uh, bike routes were put in later. Um, and you could do almost anything in Boulder, Colorado by bicycle. And you ask people, what if we got rid of all these bike routes? They'd say, never. Oh, I want this. Syracuse, New York. Stupidest thing that ever happened. They ran a high-speed road through the center of town. The African-American community was on the west side. They literally could see the hospital from where they lived, and they would have to get in a taxi cab to go oh my 100 yards to their uh, clinical appointments. And, and of course, when it's you crazy. divide a community like that, traditionally, the, the African-American community wasn't getting much economic support from the city. There was much more political power on the hospital and the, uh, the white favored side. So um, there's actually a lot of talk about tearing out that freeway. I think it's, I remember the number of it now, but, and I, that, I learned that one too. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of good people in this country that care very much and, and, want to see their children growing up in a place where they can be physically active and confident about their lives. And they really want their elderly parents to be not warehoused away in some place where they're spreading coronavirus. And so I think, you know, we need to, and it's not good for kids to grow up without old people around. They need to know what life's about. And it's not good to grow up with everybody uh, being the same color or religion that you are, you know, it doesn't prepare you for the world at all. So um, I, the other thing I want to say is, and I've been, I've been almost everywhere being in that CDC job. I, by the time I left, I had two and a half million miles on Delta Airlines. Um, wow. and where, where I'm going with that, you know, just because wow. it's the hub for lots of travel. And I had to go to DC all the time. And, um, but the more you go around the world, the more you realize the wonderful gifts we have received in this country and just how precious they are and how much we have to take care of it. I appreciate that, that message. And um, yeah, I think that that's, that's, you know, you're echoing this continued theme that we, almost every single person that we've had on our podcast, no matter what season, no matter what topic is that the, the wealth of knowledge and the, um, the importance that community members and communities, individual communities themselves bring to the table when we talk about how the built environment influences health is just unimaginable and irreplaceable um, in the sense that, you know, you really can't function 
without that knowledge and without those community members. And that's something that I found really interesting about that documentary series is that, you know, you going to all of these different places and having the opportunity to learn from all these different people. And as someone who, I I didn't grow up in Boulder, but I spent a lot of time in Boulder. There's some serious bikers there, right? And that's, it's a cultural component too. Like those, the bike stuff, you know, they would never pass something that would never fly if you were to take away the accessibility and the ability to to bike around but that's because the people in boulder have the political power they have the capacity to kind of advocate for those things and see those changes in policies and get those um you know prevent policies that they think will negatively impact their community from being implemented um and you brought it up briefly and this is something that we you know, are always interested to hear from our guests on, on, you know, just with different perspectives and different experiences, you know, there's a lot of um, social justice and equity intersect drastically with this built environment, as you mentioned, right, with these highways going through um, lower income, primarily African American communities. Um, And so, you know, what, what are your thoughts or opinions on steps that can be taken to, try and level this playing field a little bit. And, and, you know, not only are we trying to emphasize the built environment is important and the built environment impacts health, but also, you know, areas and places that have been historically disinvested in and don't have the same political capital to advocate for things and policies that are going to be good for their community. Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on how we can maybe address some of that? I don't know if you took away um, something specifically from um which city did you say was it Syracuse? Um, but I'd be interested to hear, yeah, hear your experiment experience um, with those differences in equality and access to safe built environments. You know, um, I'm a reviewer of the National Climate Assessment Number Five and 1,600 pages. It's not out yet, but uh, I of course was given the health chapter and the COVID ch- epidemic chapter and the Southwestern U.S. chapter. Um, we all were assigned five or six chapters, but one that I was assigned that I really gained a lot more appreciation from so much of the time I've been demanding and pushing for mitigation by mitigation, reducing our carbon footprint to make it simple. And the truth is we're now, you just look at the latest data. We're deep into needing to adapt and and very aggressively adapt. One of the things that even with the Infrastructure Act, the $3 trillion Infrastructure Act, there are going to be winners and losers as the decisions are made about where the money is. And the folks that are along the very inexpensive houses along the coasts are going to say, well, you know, my house is worth $3 million. I want the government to help me uh, deal with that. And yet, So one thing that's going to be very important is just what you're doing. We have got to reach out to the communities have been, and the president put about a third of the money is supposed to go into disenfranchised communities. And we've got to reach out to communities that are really um, have been burdened by racism and disinvestment for the last hundred years and redlining and no trees and you name it. Um, But, and I've seen this in Richmond, California, which is near here. It's the poorest city in California. If you come in and do things, you just kind of swoop in and they put in a bunch of trees and they leave. A year later, they're all dead. You know, it, it has to have community engagement. And the 
uh, there is a group that's been working with some of the gangs to get them to actually participate. And I think this uh, Conservation Corps uh, issue that the president just has put forward, I think is very important because this is good, meaningful work. People develop skills, but they also begin to learn how to work with other people. And, um, and we have got to protect and develop our young people. When I was teaching at UCLA, I had a wonderful, uh, we had a wonderful applicant who did not have a very good undergraduate grade point average, but she went off and worked in the Peace Corps for three years and came back and uh, the admissions committee didn't want to admit her. And I'm looking, man, she spent three years in Guatemala helping do this. We, we're going to admit her. Well, guess who turned out to be the best student in the whole class? It was, and, <laughs> and I'm, I had her give a talk to my class and I said, wow, you gave so much. And she said in a very humble way, you know, I got so much more than I gave. And I think that is the right attitude that we all ought to have, that if you really pitch in and you, you engage, you will come away richer in every good sense of the word than if you didn't do it. And I know that sounds old fashioned, else, but you got to do it. In fact, I, I'll just say one more thing. You know, when I was young, the draft board was breathing down my neck, which is one of the reasons I went to CDC is what they call an EIS officer. Uh, but I fell in love with public health because of it. And my brother had been in Vietnam as a Marine and he was telling me, don't go. And uh, so the, but you've got to do service in the young end of, end of your career. It can be medical school or nursing school or whatever career you want to do or teaching, but it, there's a whole lot more to life than just, you know, the folks that want to make money. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> definitely. No, most definitely. Um, and yeah, no, I really appreciate that story that you told about the student you admitted, despite, um, you know, these factors like GPA or what have you. I mean, that experiential wisdom and knowledge is invaluable, especially in the something like public health, right? Like how you discussed going to all of these different cities and learning from the community members, like Aaron mentioned, that's something that we've definitely gained a lot more appreciation for and see how crucial it is to being able to address a lot of these issues because those are the people who are living there every day um, and they know You're what they exactly need right, better Laura. than anybody from the outside coming in, right? So having that perspective is absolutely vital. So I, and it's very surprising that the admissions board would not recognize well, you know, that. But I'm glad every, you were there to rectify every place, that. <laughs> uh, becomes overwhelmed by technocrats, uh, if you know what I mean. And so the arts, it's the yardstick they're used to using. Yeah. That's, it's, it's easier than because that's well that's the thing about you know these the experiential knowledge is not you can't categorize it as easily you can't quantify it as easily um which is what i think something that happens a lot when we're you know when we're talking about research in neighborhoods and communities right is people who have been educated for years and years i went to i got my phd in this i did that they have a lot of knowledge on this topic right they're very knowledgeable people they went to school that's a yardstick they went to school they got their phd um and people in the community who maybe didn't even graduate high school didn't even graduate college um but they have more knowledge in this area that you can't really measure you don't measure it until you actually work with the people individuals in that community and you're on the ground so, yeah, you're right. I think it's an easier measuring stick, but it's not Don't necessarily tell anybody I said best. this, but 
you'd be astounded <laughs> how many professors are really quite juvenile. <laughs> no, but see, I, might, I was so around so much political that, that, stuff because um, everything yeah. in environmental public health is about money, you know, and, you know, and, you know, I had to be fighting, for, you know, Dr. Satcher had to fight for money for the immunization program and all those other programs at the same time. So it is about money, but it, you want to, everybody wow. wants to spend it where it's going to do the most good, except the ones that are going to make money if you spend it on tobacco and alcohol and firearms. Right. It's pitiful. It is. But um, yeah, so our, I mean, our podcast is meant to um, kind of disclose on those all, all of those unfortunate truths, but then also um, discuss, you know, what are we, what can we do to actually combat, um, you know, all of these, um, you know, yeah, travesties that we face. So I'm curious to hear from you. You are, you know, very much so involved in many different things, many different trades that work together cohesively, though, to address built environment and ultimately health outcomes. And like I said, this podcast is all about kind of giving a making a space for a different experts to come on and give us insights to how they address the problems. And then we get to weave together this storyline of how we can tackle the huge monstrous issue of health disparities from so many different angles. So could you maybe discuss a little bit about um, you know, well, what are your, first of all, like, what are your perspectives on um, the progress that we've made so far in being able to address uh, the, the issues with the built environment? And also, how have you been able to facilitate collaboration? I mean, you know, you discussed what you've been doing, at, what you did at the CDC. Um, but in other ways, how have you been able to, to facilitate collaboration with people of different disciplines to be able to come up with more innovative solutions One to is the built you, environment issue? You have to have um, authenticity, gravitas, uh, substance. You know, people, people know if you're a bullshitter or not. They, they can pick it up right away. It's not simply a New Jersey trait. Um, <laughs> and, but my a lot of my early work in public health was around pesticides and farm workers and farm worker poisonings and getting that kind of and it was absolutely fascinating because the chemicals were 10,000 different chemicals and it was but the politics were brutal I mean uh, we use as much chemical in California as the rest of the country put together almost well about a quarter of all the chemical in the country for pesticides but you, I'll just say it outright, in your late 20s and early 30s, having a good practical set of experiences, and it almost doesn't matter what you pick, as long as you keep yourself open to what's coming at you and you're reading and studying and staying on top of things, um, you will, the doors will open. I, a piece of advice is join organizations. I became very active with the American Academy of Pediatrics and had much more effectiveness by going through the American Academy than it was just Mickey Jackson standing up and saying uh, this, this, and that. So you, organizations really help. Keeping your friends close. So one of the things, you know, it's easier for you in the era of social media and everything else to, but you're going to, I found in my career so often I'd be in some difficult bind and I'd have to call a friend from 10 years before and say, you know, I, this is what I'm dealing with. And the two of you will be talking to each other 25 years from now and you will get good advice from each other. So keep your friends close. Family is everything. So, um, you know, take care of that. Take care of yourself physically. 
but the but organizations I have a son who I said, you know, you really ought to go in the Peace Corps. He said, no, that's that's really run by the CIA. I said, no, it's not. And he, he was a Berkeley grad. He sort of knew all the political answers. But where I'm going with that is um, you cannot have an impact as a young person all by yourself without connect plugging into something bigger than the network that you were already in. And uh, you will learn a lot. Um, if nothing else, you often learn what not to do, but, uh, true, very true. Uh, in, for example, I had one, uh, boss, very terrific boss. I was the health, uh, epidemiologist for New York state for a while. And I was having a hard time because I'd get mad at somebody and I'd want to get in a fight with them. Uh, not physically, but you know, uh, to do battle. I said, Dick, look, you got to learn to say what you think, but do it with a smile on your face. So that you don't um, you don't make it worse, and it was seems like obvious advice, but no one had ever told me that growing up in New Jersey. Um, so, but you know, just that, well, those are two pieces of advice. So, oh, and I don't need to tell you this. You're, you're such fine people, but uh, nothing goes away in the era of the internet. So. Don't do anything stupid um, that somebody's taking a video of you. <laughs> yes, that's a very key piece of information to have. Um, in we try our, our best. Yeah, yeah, but you know what I mean. <laughs> some of our listeners know <laughs> that, that some moments are better than others. <laughs> no, um, that, yes, <laughs> there's some capacity. But um, thank you so much, Dr. Jackson, for all of oh, your anecdotes. And you know, last one is yes. When you're young, identify mentors that you can call up and they don't have a vested interest in what you do, but they want to be there to talk through things. And you'll find that talking through that you usually know the solution yourself, but you have to sort of uh, explain them before you um, to someone else. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, I would tell you, women are much better about this than men are. <laughs> um, so, and then the gift works the other way because I've, given advice to young people at this stage of my life. And they would say silly things like, well, you have a lot of wisdom. I said, yeah, wisdom you get from, ex from making mistakes. <laughs> and, <laughs> Maybe by the time we're your age, we'll have lots and lots of wisdom. <laughs> but you know, you, you, you do, you know, you go, oh, I'll never do that again. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. um, but the gift to someone at my stage is to be able to do what we're doing right now to speak to future leaders and young people that I am proud to get to know. No, that's awesome. That's very nice. Of you. Yes. <laughs> and we're, again, we're just very um, honored to be able to sit down with uh, someone to your um, merit and experience level, um, just endowing all of your insights um, and giving us hope to know that there are constructive things that we can continue to do to um, make our communities better that's all we're about here is looking um, how to, you know, prevent unnecessary, uh, you know, health crises to prevent unnecessary uh, strife and burden in the most vulnerable communities that we we have. Um, and uh, yeah, so we just thank you so much for being able to sit down with us and talk to us today. And I know you kind of alluded to this a couple times throughout our discussion, but we have to ask you formally, because uh, it's a tradition on our podcast, since we're about neighborhoods and how your 
um, environment, your built environment impacts your life trajectory, we have to ask all of our guests, um, if you can just describe your neighborhood growing up and what it was like uh, and how that might have influenced your life today. Interesting. Um, after my dad died, we were in um, an old city that uh, the houses were usually two and three family houses. It was actually fun because there were so many kids around. This is immediate post-war. And uh, then Newark honestly became very difficult um, for a lot of reasons. And the family, everybody moved to the suburbs at that point. And I discovered that the suburbs are the most boring place in the world. So um, I was so happy to uh, get into medical school in San Francisco. And I loved the mix of culture. I loved the fact that you could get to Yosemite and the outdoors and Big Sur and, and you could bike anywhere. Um, I now live, I love living in Berkeley because, uh, frankly, there's wonderful bluegrass, wonderful music, wonderful art, um, wonderful professors that I can learn from all the time and wonderful students I can learn from. So uh, I'm glad to be where I'm at. And I have three of the most beautiful little granddaughters within uh, a half hour's drive. Oh, that's very sweet. Well, we're glad that, you know, you are where you're at. Um, it's definitely set a lot of us up to um, make a lot of change and impact we want to see in the future. So, um, again, thank you so much, Dr. Jackson. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. My pleasure. And keep in touch. I, I love Yes, this. definitely. And um, to our viewers, we or listeners rather, or both, we thank you for joining us for another episode of Healthy Neighborhoods, Healthy Nation podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate it if you could give our podcast a five-star review and go follow us on Instagram at HNHN underscore podcast. And you can also check out our YouTube channel for the video recording of our conversation. So please join us next time to continue our journey of exploring how healthy neighborhoods are the foundation to a healthy nation. Thank you. You are such pros. I'm someday if I live long enough and say, I met them back when they were just young people. We would be so delighted if that was the case. (laughs) No, we, 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 it was a big, it's a big learning. We try. Pleasant light. Pleasant sounds like a weak word. I don't mean it that way, but you can imagine I've been through a lot of very difficult interviews in my life and reporters and <laughs> members of the legislature and everybody else. So oh, yeah. um, being with people that who, I'll be honest, who I really like and admire is a gift.